Um, Before we read the passage today, um, I'd like to draw our attentions to some part of the way this chapter works, its literary design, because it helps us make part of its, its whole story, the story that it's trying to tell. Because Genesis 35, it gives us actually just a very brief overview of a series of different moments in Jacob's life before um, Genesis really starts to then focus its attention on his 12 sons. So this is kind of coming to the end of our focus on Jacob in Genesis. And on its first reading, at least when I first read this, this chapter felt like it can be a bit rushed. It's a little bit disjointed. There's just this series of stories strung together and we've just got to wonder how we make sense of it all. Um, But a careful reading reveals some repeated themes that link these moments in Jacob's life together. And each of these themes are loaded with meaning and deeply connected to other parts of the biblical story. And so whenever biblical authors are repeating words or themes, it's a clue for us to pay attention. And today's passage is full of trees It's full of sacred spaces like altars and pillars. It's full of life and moments of blessing. And it's full of death. These words and themes are repeated all the way through Genesis 35. And I'd also like us to keep an ear out, as I read in a moment, for the blessing that God speaks over Jacob. And see if you can recognise where you've heard God say a similar thing to people before in Genesis. As this will connect their stories together in a meaningful way. (laughs) And now that I've mentioned these things, highlighted these little moments in uh, Genesis 35, I hope that they'll begin to stand out as I read and will help tie all these events together. And I hope that by us following these symbolic clues, like little breadcrumbs the author's left for us, we can see how chapter 35, like all of scripture, reveals the nature of God, the nature of humanity, and ultimately points us to Jesus. And there are three big ideas that I want us to explore in this chapter today. The first is that we long for the life of Eden, the Garden of Eden, to return to that sacred space, to dwell in the presence of God as his image bearers, worshipping him as we fulfil the commission first given to mankind in the Garden. But instead of that, we're separated from his presence and live in a land of sin and death as we see everywhere on display in this passage. The second is that God chooses to establish Israel as a nation of priests, priests being those who can enter into holy space where heaven and earth meet and God's presence dwells. Priests are ordained or meant to worship God and act as mediators between him and humanity. Priests intercede on behalf of people, performing rituals to cleanse them and forgive them of their sins. And in this passage, Jacob is depicted as performing a very priestly role. The third thing I want to highlight today is that ultimately, this nation of priests is not enough. Sin and death continue, and we remain outside of the garden and God's presence. We need a greater priest than Jacob or Jacob's sons, the Levites, who become priests after him. We need a greater temple than the one that stood in Jerusalem. We need a priest who can make us clean forever and forgive our sin once and for all, so that we could all worship God as his image bearers and bring blessing to the nations. And that priest is Jesus. So we've got that we long for a life of Eden, 
that God chose to establish Israel as a nation of priests, but that this nation of priests is not enough. And I'm going to talk a lot about priests this morning, and while priests are probably not something that many of us are intimately uh, familiar with, it's important that we understand what they are and what they do, because it helps us, it's going to help us understand the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection, and why the apostles would later refer to Jesus' followers as a kingdom of priests and a living temple. And so we're going to explore a little bit of that today as well. So with that said, I'm going to read Genesis chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, but no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then he journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And her labor was at its hardest. The midwife said to her, do not fear, for you have another son. And her soul was departing, for she was dying. She called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Edah. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, 
the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, when Abraham and Isaac had sojourned, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now there is some unthinkable sin that goes on in this passage, and so much death that is described. And we've all experienced the pain of sin and death at some point in our lives, all felt that the world as we know it is not how it's supposed to be. We've all longed for something more. We all see the brokenness that is around us, the brokenness that is in us, and we've all felt ashamed of ourselves, all wanted to belong to a family but instead felt estranged and hurt by those that we are supposed to be closest to. We experience anger, violence, abuse, some done to us, some done by us. We see that injustice abounds, the weak are oppressed by the strong, and there seems like there is no way to make it right. We are truly living in a land of death. But if we all know deep down that this is not how it's supposed to be, the question for us is, how is it supposed to be? How are we supposed to live? On the first page of the Bible, God creates the heavens and the earth along with everything that would fill them. On the land, in Eden, God plants a garden and puts mankind there as his image bearers to worship him and enjoy the blessings of the garden. The garden was a place teeming with life, full of fruit trees and flowing rivers, Gold and other precious stones abound. This is a paradise, and at its center stood the tree of life. This was a truly sacred space where God and mankind dwelt together in peace, and it was very good. And there God blessed humanity, and he told them what they were to do, how they were to live. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant that yields seed and on the face of the earth and on every tree and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Later God says that the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is where we were meant to be not in this land of death, but in the Garden of Eden, this sacred space where God and man can dwell together in peace. And this is what we were meant to do, to worship God, to be fruitful and spread the blessing of God and his goodness, the goodness of the garden across the face of the whole earth. And we ache for this in the depths of our soul, even if we don't know it. This is what we long for, this paradise that was lost. Lost because Adam and Eve, our first parents, were deceived by the serpent and disobeyed the command of God by taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Immediately they become ashamed of themselves. Their relationships between each other are broken. 
God exiles them from the Garden of Eden, from his presence, and their relationship with God is broken. They cannot dwell in his presence in peace. They are cut off from the source of life and death enters into the world. They are outside of the sacred garden and humanity descends into violence and chaos. And this is the world we live in. We are all affected by this fall. You could say that we are infected by the fall. Sin and death cling to us because we are unable, and, and because of it, we are unable to dwell in the presence of God. We have all been hurt by sin. We have all hurt others with our own sin. The blessings of Eden are now just a distant memory, a cry of our soul in our inner being. And there must be a way to get back to this place to get back to this state. If, if paradise has been lost, we need someone to show us the way back, someone who is worthy to stand in the presence of God and act as a representative on our behalf so that maybe we might experience this blessing once again. We need a priest. Priests may not be a concept, as I've said, that many of us are familiar with, but and you might, when, when I say priest, you might be thinking of old men dressed up in strange clothes and funny hats um, that say strange things. But priests play a significant role in the story of the Bible and the life of God's people. Biblical scholar Tim Mackey describes the role of priests in the Bible like this. He says, a priest is someone who presides over the overlapping boundary of heaven and earth. Their primary function is to represent God to the people and the people to God. Priests act as mediators between heaven and earth, between the divine and human. And God would, have form, would formally establish the tribe of Levi to be his priest, much later in the story, as we'll read as we go through um, Genesis. Oh, that's in Exodus. He establishes them as mediators between himself and the people. And these Levitical priests would work in the temple, which was carefully designed as a symbolic space that represents the Garden of Eden. And I won't go into all the details for the sake of time. They're all the details that you find in those books of the Bible that we normally skip over, but they are very remarkable. And I'll share just two of my favourites quickly that link the temple and the Garden of Eden. So first, just like the cherubim guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden, cherubim decorate the entrance of the temple, symbolising that only that, that we cannot enter, that you need to be invited to enter this space. And second, all the precious stones and metals that are mentioned in Genesis 2 and seem a little bit random that they're mentioned there, all of those same stones and precious metals are the things that adorn the high priest's clothing, you know, the, his crown and his effort. He, he wears all this clothing that's covered in these jewels that are described in Eden as a symbol that these are, this is a place, the temple is a place where heaven and earth overlap, that this is like a symbolic Garden of Eden. And I just... There's so many details there, but I just find it so amazing how the Bible works together to paint this picture for us. But before all of that, before the temple, before the, the priests, God chooses Abraham, and it's from his family that the nation of priests will be established. And so in Genesis 12, God makes himself known to Abraham and gives him a divine call to be the mediator of his blessing to the nations. He declares to Abraham in Genesis 12 that I will make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
And Abraham spends many long years traveling in and around the land of Canaan. And God meets Abraham many times on his travels. And these encounters with God always takes place specifically near trees. First at Shechem and the oaks of Moriah, later at Bethel and the almond trees of Luz. The word Luz means almond trees. And finally, Hebron and the oaks of Mamre. And Abraham responds when God meets him in these places by marking them as sacred, either by building an altar or erecting a pillar and performing rituals as an act of worship. And these moments, they're meant to remind us of the Garden of Eden. They all take place near trees. This is no coincidence. Abraham is being invited into the presence of God, just like um, humanity was in Eden, to worship him, to experience his blessing and be a blessing. This is Abraham acting like a priest. And we expect that Abraham's offspring will continue to act as priests, worshipping God and being a blessing to the nations. But instead, we have Jacob. When Jacob left his uncle Laban with his wives and children, God told him to return to Bethel. Bethel was where God had first met Jacob in an incredible vision of heaven and earth meeting. Jacob declared that God dwelt in that place and he called it the house of God. Jacob had set up an altar there and made a vow to return to worship the one true God here at Bethel. Jacob was supposed to establish himself in Bethel as a kind of priest, but he does not go. He disobeys the command of God, he doesn't fulfill his vow, and it results in utter chaos. In Genesis 34, which we read last week, Jacob's family has been hurt by sin, the rape of his daughter Dinah, but he has also hurt others by his own sin. His sons respond by massacring an entire city, and Jacob does nothing to stop it. All this bloodshed done by the hands of the family, God has chosen to be his priests. These are people who are supposed to be a blessing to the nations and intercede on their behalf for forgiveness of their sins, but instead this family is a curse and they themselves need forgiveness for their sins. Jacob has failed miserably, but God is so faithful to the faithless. Genesis 35 opens with God pulling Jacob right out of the mess that he has gotten himself into and reminding him of the vow that he has made. Um, Verse 1 says, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Jacob responds immediately. He knows what he must do. He's known all along that he's supposed to go to Bethel. But it's like finally he's hit rock bottom and he's ready to make a change. And isn't that so true of us in our life? Why is it so often that we need to hit rock bottom in order to do what we know we ought to do? And so Jacob responds immediately. He tells his whole household, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. You can safely say that this is definitely the day of Jacob's distress. If he stays where he is, the surrounding tribes will attack his family in vicious retribution. Jacob knows that he has let sin carry on unchecked in his household for far too long. 
that his family cannot continue to worship other gods. He is responsible for this. And so to go up to the house of God to worship, to go to Bethel, the people need to be purified. They are tainted by sin and death, their idol worship. And so they purify themselves and they change their clothes in a symbolic way to show that they respect the holiness of God. They they respect the place that they are going to go, that God dwells in this place and they need to make a change. And by calling his household to purify themselves, Jacob is preparing them in the right way to go to the house of God, just as a priest would ensure that the people of Israel would do when they came to the temple. They would make sure they were purified and clean. And so here we are seeing that Jacob is finally starting to live up to his calling to act as a priest on behalf of the people. And they respond. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And so the people respond immediately. It's like they too know the serious trouble they are in and they are prepared to do whatever it takes to get out of their bad state. And so Jacob hides their idols. It's like he is ashamed of the practices that he has allowed to go on among his family. Other translations, instead of saying hides, use the word buried here, like you would bury the dead. Jacob is symbolically putting sin to death on behalf of the people, burying them before they go up to the house of the Lord. And he does this at the terebinth tree. Terebinth tree means oak tree near Shechem. And I asked us to keep an ear out for things that sound familiar. The oak trees near Shechem is where Abraham first stopped, built an altar to the Lord and worshipped God when he entered the land of Canaan in Genesis, 20, uh, in Genesis 12, verse 6. Abraham then goes from there and travels to Bethel, uh, near Luz, the almond trees there in Genesis 12, 8, where he also built an altar and worshipped God. Abraham later finally settles by the oaks of Mamre in Hebron, very near Jerusalem, where he builds an altar and worships God. These are all sites where Abraham travelled and served as a priest, and they became places of sacred. Uh, they became sacred places because they were places where God was pleased to reveal Himself to mankind. And I mention all of this because, as we read on, we're going to see Jacob retrace this exact journey. His first stop is here at Shechem. Then he goes to Bethel, and finally he ends up in Hebron to bury his father Isaac. He is literally following in his grandfather's footsteps. His grandfather who worshipped the Lord like a priest. And so we see here again that Jacob is finally living up his family's call to serve God as a priest. And so they journey out. Uh, Verse 5 says, As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And in the day of their distress, God delivers his chosen people. The cities around them were ready to attack Jacob's household, but they cannot. And this allows Jacob to travel safely to Bethel to worship God and fulfill the vow he swore. And it strikes me that Jacob and his family did not deserve God's protection. They had just committed mass murder. They deserve punishment. Not mercy. 
So just, I just want us to stop and dwell on that for a moment. These murderers, they receive mercy. God was willing to protect sinners and lead them safely to a sacred space to worship him. Yes, they may have changed their clothes and buried their idols, putting that sin to death, but they were still murderers. But it didn't matter. God was willing to forgive his chosen people. God is so merciful to those he chooses, extending his grace even to the worst of sinners. If this family could be delivered and forgiven, any of us can be delivered and forgiven. And so in uh, verses 6 to 7, we read that Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Finally, Jacob arrives, fulfilling his vow and worshipping God at the altar at Bethel interceding on behalf of a sinful people and extending the blessings of Eden. It's a real high point. It's a redemption moment for Jacob. Finally, now he's lived up to what he was supposed to do. And perhaps now the blessings of Eden, the life that is longed for, will begin to take place amongst this people. Maybe there will be life. But instead, immediately what we read is that we see death. And we are reminded that it remains in verse 8, and Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth, the oak of weeping. It's a bitter reminder that despite this high point, this redemption moment, we are still outside the Garden of Eden. We are still living in a land of sin and death. Nevertheless, God appears to Jacob again and blesses him, reminding Jacob again that his name is no longer Jacob, but Israel. And God really does have to remind Jacob a lot of the things that have happened. Despite God already having changed his name, Jacob continued to go by his old name, which means deceiver. It's like he couldn't move on from his old self, his old way of life. Jacob is a painfully slow learner, but God is very patient with him. The blessing God gave Jacob here is significant. It echoes the blessing God gave Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Both open with the exact same line, be fruitful and multiply. And so we're clearly supposed to be thinking of Genesis 1 here. Then Jacob is told a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Nations which would fill the earth, just as God said in Genesis 1. Jacob is then told by God that kings shall come from his own body. And in Genesis 1, humanity is instructed to subdue the earth and have dominion. These are words that describe the role of kings. Kings subdue and have dominion on the earth. And finally, twice, God tells Jacob, I will give you and your offspring the land promised to Abraham. And twice in Genesis 1, God tells humanity, I have given you the land. These are not coincidences. These are very, very intentional. God is giving Jacob the same task he first gave to humanity and always intended them to carry out, to worship him in his presence as priests, receiving the blessing of God and spreading that blessing across the face of the earth. This is how we are meant to live. 
And Jacob is given this now as his call. This blessing has us looking forward in hope for a king to come from Jacob. But not just any king, a priest king, a royal priest, one who is worthy to stand before God in his presence and can intercede on our behalf, purifying us and forgiving us of sin once and for all, so that we too could enter his presence and live the life we so desperately long for but cannot attain on our own. We need this royal priest because as we continue to see through this passage again and again, Jacob is not enough. Jacob's worshipping at the altar does not bring an end to sin and death, and nor can any of the priests who come after him. Despite moments of blessing and life, humanity is still surrounded by sin and death. So we'll read on. They journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labour, and she had hard labour. And when her labour was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name, the child's name, Ben-Onai. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Imagine the flood of mixed emotions Jacob must have been feeling in this tragic moment. And maybe you've experienced this kind of confusing, tragic joy in your own life. And if you have, I'm sorry. His wife, the one whom he adores, has just died. But she has also given birth to new life. It's life and death in the exact same moment. And these two opposite and conflicting emotions being held together is symbolised by the place where this takes place. The place is called Ephrath. This is a Hebrew word that has two different meanings. In English, we would call this a homonym. For example, bat can be something you hit a ball with, but a bat can also be a flying animal, or bark can be what comes off a tree, but it's also the sound that dogs make. The exact same word, but two different meanings. And Ephrath can mean either fruitful or exhausted, depleted. Two completely different meanings, but right now, Both are true at the exact same time. Rachel has been fruitful in giving birth, but has exhausted her life. With her last breath, she names the boy Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob stands in and names the boy Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. It's a bittersweet moment of life and death. We read on... And the tragedy of sin and joy, the tragedy of sin and the joy of blessings continue to stand in contrast with each other throughout the rest of this passage. Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, commits a disgusting sin against his family, sexually abusing his father's wife, Bilhah. Not much is said about this, but not much really needs to be said. This is the depravity of Jacob's family on full display. This sin committed against Jacob and Bilhah is immediately contrasted, however, with the list of Jacob's sons, a sign of the fruitfulness that God has blessed him with. Sons and children are a joy and a blessing. It's not like we don't know who Jacob's sons are already. We don't necessarily need this list here, but the author of Genesis is placing it here deliberately to contrast the tragedy of Reuben's sin and the joy of Jacob's many children. 
We read on and Jacob finishes retracing his father, his grandfather Abraham's footsteps and arrives at the Oaks of Mamre in Hebron. And this is where Abraham and Isaac finally settled. Both are buried there with their wives. And later, Jacob and Leah too would finally be buried in this spot. Incredibly, you can actually still go there to this very day. A tomb and a temple have been erected there and established in their honour. But again, this moment is bittersweet. Isaac, Jacob's father, lived a long and full life. He remained in the promised land. His two sons, who were once enemies, are able to come together in peace. But it's for an occasion of sorrow. In the end, we're reminded that death takes us all, that death continues to have the final word. And so Genesis 35 leaves us unsatisfied, longing for one who would come and finally defeat sin and death, reconciling humanity to God. The people of Israel longed for this as well and referred to the one they longed for as the Messiah. In Isaiah 61, the prophet talks about what this Messiah would be like. He calls him the Lord's anointed one. And only two people are called the anointed ones in Israel, the priest and the king. This Messiah, therefore, would be a royal priest, And Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah, when he comes, would declare this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The spirit of God would be with the Messiah and he would bring the good news to a broken world. He would bring the blessings of God. And the good news is we know the Messiah, the royal priest, the anointed one who Isaiah spoke about is Jesus. And Jesus began his public ministry by quoting that very passage from Isaiah 61 and then by telling the people that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying that he is the Messiah. He has come to bring good news that there will be hope for those who are broken, for all who long for the life of Eden. Jesus is the one who will show us the way back to the garden, to God's presence, to life. Jesus is the royal priest. But Jesus was not just a royal priest who would simply offer up sacrifices in a temple. Jesus says that he is the temple. John chapter 2 describes a scene when the Jews wanted proof that Jesus was in fact the Messiah and Jesus answers them by saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, confused, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? And the author John uh, explains for us, the reader, that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his own body. To say that Jesus' uh, body is the temple is to say that God dwells in him because he is God. He is the source of life to which the temple pointed as only a symbol. Not only is Jesus the temple, the very presence of God, he is also the sacrifice. The priests would have to continually offer animal sacrifices to achieve and attain the forgiveness of their own sins and the sins of others, and the animal died symbolically in their place. But Jesus instead offers up his own life at the cross to die in our place 
so that we may be made clean and our sins forgiven once and for all, forever forgiven. Isaiah 53 prophesies that he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus would die, but his death would not be the end. Death could not defeat the one who is life. Jesus was crucified as a sacrifice so that we may be forgiven, but he was raised up to life so that we could enjoy new life with him. Jesus is the ultimate royal priest we have all been longing for. And he declares that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Jesus, we are invited to do what before was not possible because of our sin. We are invited to dwell in the very presence of God, to know him and to worship him, to experience his blessings. In John 17, in what is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays to the Father for the disciples. He says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me. I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, I read those words, and I'm not sure I still, even now, today, fully comprehend the implications of what Jesus is saying here. It's, it's so powerful, it's quite overwhelming. Jesus is saying that he is in us, and that we are in Jesus. How can that be true? How can God Almighty, the God of all creation, the source of life, dwell in us? It's truly awesome. It's truly unbelievable. But this is what the apostles believe. Those who witnessed Jesus risen believed. The apostle Peter, who writes to followers of Jesus in his first letter, says this, As you come to him, Jesus, who is a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, and are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's still mind-blowing that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we no longer need a priest. We no longer need to go to a sacred space because believing in Jesus' death and resurrection means that we are the sacred space. We are the spiritual house because God's spirit, his life, dwells in us. Brothers and sisters, we have been made into a royal priesthood in order that we would proclaim the name of Jesus and the blessing of new life that he has given us. We are called to be a blessing to the nations. We can still today look around us and know that we are still living in a land of death, in a world full of the brokenness and pain of sin. You may be looking for a way out. 
to escape. You may be searching for a way to have true life. You may have tried many different things, followed many different paths, and learned that they do not have true life at the end of them. Or maybe you're still figuring that out at the moment, learning that lesson the long way like Jacob did. But nothing else will give us the life we really long for. I stand before you today to say that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that he is God in human form, that he is the great high priest we all need because he is life. You don't need to search any longer. You can come to Jesus, turn away from sin and follow him. Remember that if Jacob could be invited to worship God as a priest, so can you. No one is too sinful. Jesus died to forgive your sin. There is no more need for shame or guilt or fear. If you are a follower of the risen Jesus, know that you are a royal priest, that you have the spirit of God dwelling in you. You have been given a sacred treasure so precious. You have new life. This is actually, it's almost quite scary to consider this power that is in us, this source of life, to think that we've been given such an incredible gift, but know that in Jesus you are made worthy of this gift. Don't be like Jacob, reluctant to accept his call as a priest or his new name, Israel. You have been given new life. Don't be afraid to truly live as royal priests in this world whose whole life is given in worship to God, whose task is to be a blessing to those around you, that you would declare his goodness in everything you do, great and small, so that others might experience this life for themselves.